You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. Climate is extremely important to understanding the long-term value prospects of individual companies. That's what this whole impetus is around. It's not about saying, you know, uh, we're going to preach to you about what you should be doing, whether it relates to women on boards or uh, climate. This is not about values. We may share those values, but it's about value and how you're creating value, how you're ensuring that the companies in which you're investing are creating value. And that's the whole focus of this. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School. And I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS and faculty chair of the school's Business and Environment Initiative, a hub for environmentally focused research, teaching, and discourse. Climate change poses risks to many sectors of the economy. Its physical risks are affecting operations and supply chains, causing disruptions and affecting operating costs in sectors ranging from agriculture to transportation. Companies also face the risk that laws and regulations will increasingly impose costs on greenhouse gas pollution, forcing that externality into transaction prices, which will alter the competitive landscape in energy and other sectors. And all of these risks have important implications on the financial sector, the investors, lenders, and insurers of these operating companies. In early 2020, Harvard Business School convened industry experts, HBS alumni, and our faculty members for a conference entitled Risks, Opportunities, and Investment in the Era of Climate Change. In this and the next three episodes of Climate Rising, we'll hear from financial services experts talking about how they are addressing climate risk in their business, some interesting financial innovations, and their perspectives on the impact of the price on carbon. We kick this off with today's episode, which focuses on leading a financial institution in the era of climate change. HBS professor George Serafim took the stage of Clarman Hall here on campus to speak with HBS alum Ronald O'Hanley, the CEO of State Street Bank, one of the world's largest custodian banks overseeing $32 trillion in assets. Mr. O'Hanley's voice on the topic of long-term value and climate change carries significant weight in the industry. Ron O'Hanley, address the role of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD, the topic of shareholder and proxy voting, and what asset owners can do going forward to make an impact. We want to start the conversation because you have such a unique view of the financial system, leading State Street that actually touches so many areas of the financial system with a global exchange business, with a global markets business, with a global advisors business, the custody business and so forth. One of the things that we have been hearing is about how increasing regulatory risk, we have gone from just in 15 years, from eight, seven uh, pricing uh, of carbon 
in across jurisdictions uh, to about 50, uh, north of 50. So as the regulatory risk is increasing and as also physical risk and technological risk is increasing, what do you see in the markets in terms of how investors are changing capital allocations? Well, George, uh, let me begin by saying uh, uh, I want to thank you and thank your colleagues uh, for actually sponsoring this. I look around the room and think that there's uh, 300 alumni here really thinking hard about this topic, and it's a great statement that we are thinking about it because I think it's the most important thing facing investors right now. I think the challenge is, even despite what you just described in terms of the trend, which I view as positive, is that in general, I don't think that climate change risks and the risk associated with carbon are actually priced into most markets these days. Part of that is because we don't have universal pricing, and there's the possibility or the belief by some that it won't happen in the foreseeable future. You couple that with what I believe is the inherent short-termism in most form of investing. So I think we're in the situation now where you've got, on the one hand, the nature of the liabilities that most investors are trying to solve for are very long-term. And you've got a system of investing uh, which is inherently short-term. Um, and it's what short-term in its measurement, short-term in you know, how people think about compensation and the way they're remunerated, and even some short-term in the way people think about their own careers in terms of if I do well in this role, I'm going to get advanced in the next role. It's inherently short-term. So this is the complication that we see. And in our role, we play two important roles in this. On the one hand, we're an investor, third largest in the world, and we tend to, uh, we have a large portion of that in index funds. And if you think about index funds, it's really the closest thing to permanent capital uh, in the public markets. As long as something is in the index, we will be invested in it. So we worry about this a lot because we don't have the option of being able to say, gee, we don't like what XYZ company is doing and turning the S&P 500 into the S&P 499. We have to remain invested in all 500. So much of our stewardship activities around this is trying to bring this forward. The second role we play is uh, we're the largest, or depending on the quarter, uh, largest or second largest servicer of assets in the world. So you know, all these assets that are owned by asset owners, we administer them in some way, $36 trillion worth, in terms of we're processing them, measuring them, uh, performance managing them, et cetera. And that's even a bigger problem because the biggest challenge for investors with all this change going on is how do I know whether I'm doing well? How do I know whether I'm making the right decision? You know, in the what I call the old way of performance measurement, you know, you, you picture horizon, one, three, five year, you decided whether you're gonna measure yourself against a benchmark or against peers, and it was pretty straightforward. Right. The only variable might be kind of who are the peers or we think, you know, might you get really radical and think about a 10 year horizon. Now it has to do with uh, portfolio content, you know, what's in the portfolio, how are we going to work there? So it's become very complicated, but I think it's vital uh, in our role as a provider and uh, our competitors' role as providers that we solve this problem and enable investors to be able to invest with climate in mind. And uh, you touch on measurement. You mentioned measurement. And measurement is something that everybody complains yeah. in this space. Now we have reasonable data on scope one, scope two emissions, for example. The scope three data is not there. And it's very, very complicated how to even measure that. What do you see as what we need to have in terms of 
new data, new analytics, and new financial products in an era of climate change? I mean, clearly more data would help, but even just uh, full adoption of some of the standards and approaches that are out there now. So TCFD, for example, you know, we can all complain about it and it's certainly not perfect, but you got to start somewhere, right? Um, and if you go back in deep history in the 30s, I mean, even FASB and, and some of the common accounting standards was thought to be radical, but we need to start somewhere on this. So I think almost insisting on adoption of this. And I think this is where the role that the asset owners can play, because ultimately it's their money, right? And, and they're the ones, I mean, in some ways we're just the agent. Uh, it's their money and insisting upon, we're not gonna make an investment unless we have proper disclosure. I mean, we wouldn't make an investment in a public company if we didn't have certified financial statements. Why wouldn't we insist on, for example, having uh, TCFD fully adopted? So that would be one. But secondly, I do think there's much more that can be done on data. Uh, again, driven by what investors want, I think you will see more data sources coming available, and it is, but it, it's got to be driven by the asset owner and the asset manager saying, we're not going to uh, go forward unless we have this data and are able to use this with you. How are you thinking about the issue of carbon tax and carbon regulation going forward? How are you preparing State Street, thinking about your own organization in terms of your expectations in the next five to 10 years? Do you see an increased probability of getting towards a global price on carbon? Or, and if yes, how fast and how much? It's a complicated question. Let me just take it apart a bit. I don't think that the world can proceed forward unless we have a, a, a global price on carbon and, and global pricing mechanisms. I mean, you've got just incredibly distorted kind of policies in place. I mean, any economist will tell you if you don't fully price in the externalities that we're not able to uh, get the proper and, and appropriate economic behavior. So uh, we, from a policy perspective, feel that this is a threshold issue and needs to happen. You know, the question is when it will happen. And I think there's, um, well, there's lots of obstacles to it. Um, you know, there's politics and, and notwithstanding Chatham House rules, I'm not going to go there. But there's there's the political situation in the U.S., which I think eventually will unlock, but I think in the short term probably won't. I think the other very real issue is how you think about the transition to this. You know, on the one hand, uh, the carbon problem is truly a global problem, right? We should care about what's going on in India. We should care about what's going on in China. And I think the way it gets solved is globally. On the other hand, you've got real transition issues for some of these developing economies. And I actually buy the argument that, okay, the develop, you, the developed world, kind of had your chance. You know, you did what you did uh, in terms of disrupting the environment. And why are you telling us we can't do it? Now, we know why they shouldn't be doing it because we just know better than we knew 100 or 150 years ago. But I think at some level, we need to think about, and you know, I'll use the dirty word subsidy, um, you know, how do you, in the transition, make sure that developing markets actually are treated fairly and are able to develop, not held back in their development as part of this transition? But getting back to your question, we do see this coming both as investors and frankly, as a corporation. We think about climate along four dimensions at State Street. I've given you two, right? One is um, as an asset manager, second as an asset servicer. Third, 
we're a corporation, right? And you know, we we live in this world, and uh, we're driving ourselves towards uh, first carbon reduction, and then second to carbon neutrality. And you know, it's it's hard work, but actually, when you apply yourself to it, at least for a financial institution, it's not that hard, right? We're going to get there much sooner than we expect it to be. And then the fourth dimension is just as a member of the community. I mean, we tend to be a large player in the communities that we're in, and you know, these our employees live in these communities. We want to see these communities thrive. So for us, we see this coming. We're supporting the coming of it. Um, and I think for most of us, we can probably say that, yeah, on the one hand, we're going to pay more for this, but then there's going to be more opportunity coming out of it. And we see a bright new investment opportunities out of this. So that's where we are. And it's uh, very interesting that you mentioned the word opportunity. Just two days ago, I was teaching my class and um, I was teaching a case on a chemicals, on a big chemicals company in Europe. I think I mentioned that to you a little bit. Um, and the CEO of the company was there. And I mentioned what are the implications from a carbon tax. And we got pretty fast to the fact that it would add about 700 million in cost for the company. And it was almost impossible to get to the point that actually it would generate about four billion in revenues. Because when you mention about a tax, everybody's thinking about cost, but actually it's an opportunity for the management teams that have positioned companies to be competitive in this low carbon era. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I also think that the way this will play out is that you know, the, anytime somebody suggest a new cost or some kind of broad-based tax, of course there's a, a lot of resistance and that tends to be enabled by certain political systems too. But I think we're going to very quickly get to the point where the uncertainty around the tax is actually going to be more painful than the tax. And as you start to see, particularly for global companies, that this mechanism is being imposed around the world, and then there's this question about whether or not the U.S. is going to do it. I think at, at some point, the uncertainty around that will be more painful. I mean, the analogy here is around the fiduciary rule, for those of you that followed that, right? There was a lot of opposition to the fiduciary rule, and then it was pushed through. And we can all question whether or not the rule made sense, but it gave some certainty. And then, in fact, when the uh, Trump administration came in and started talking about rolling it back, it was interesting, all those that had actually opposed it before, said, no, 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 right? One, we've already done it, and two, we finally have certainty. We know where we're going. So I think that uh, the uncertainty around what's going to happen with carbon pricing may be our best friend here. Uh, you wrote uh, a recent letter to the editor in the Wall Street Journal um, distinguishing between values-driven investing versus value-driven investing. Why it's so important for a long-term investor to actually focus on sustainability? Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us, because I think this is something that is a little bit of a misconception in many people's minds. Give us a little bit of the rationale for that. Yeah, I think this is an important distinction to be made. You know, are we focused on value or are we focused on values? And the letter that George is referring to was, uh, if you recall, when Larry Fink of BlackRock published his, his latest letter to CEOs, uh, there was a lot of criticism. Uh, and the basic criticism was that, you know, why should investors be imposing their values on, uh, on whether it's uh, individual companies or actually the investors in which, on, whom, on whose behalf they're operating? And I can't speak for Larry, but I do think that uh, what BlackRock is doing is not dissimilar to what we're doing. This is about value. And we 
particularly, as I said, as long-term investors, think that climate is extremely important to understanding the long-term value prospects of individual companies. And that's what this whole impetus is around. It's not about saying, you know, uh, we're going to preach to you about what you should be doing, whether it relates to women on boards or uh, climate. This is not about values. We may share those values, but what my values are, what Larry's values are actually aren't relevant, but it's about value and how you're creating value, how you're ensuring that the companies in which you're investing are creating value. And that's the whole focus of this. And I think we've allowed the dialogue to get out of control here and we've lost the dialogue and control of that, that somehow those of us that are really thinking about this and investing this way are imposing their values. It has nothing to do with that. I mean, I always use the example of coal, right? Coal reached peak market capitalization in 2011, right? And four years later, most of those or several of those companies, at least in the US, were bankrupt. And now I've learned last night they've taken another step down. So the point being, it's about value, whether or not uh, I believe that coal is a good thing or not from a values perspective is irrelevant. It's how do we think about long-term shareholder value? Thank you, Ron. Um, questions from the floor. Um, you spoke a little bit about how investors can um, insist that companies uh, give better disclosure and adopt standards, um, environmental standards as a condition for investment. But uh, could you talk a little bit about the leverage you have as a um, manager of ETF, a passive investment in that? Because you do have to invest across the index. So you can't make the threat of not investing in a company. Um, so what, what are the leverage points that you have with companies in that sense? Yeah, I mean, that, that's right. The, uh, if you're managing, whether it's an ETF or even a separate account to an index, you're basically bound to invest in that index. On the other hand, one could define the index as you know, it needs to be constituted of companies that do this and uh, provide these disclosures. So I don't think that's that big of a leap. I mean, that's not our role in the ecosystem here, but could S&P or S&P Global or MSCI uh, impose that? Sure they could. I don't think that's hard, that hard a leap. And, and again, this will happen if the ultimate investors insist on it. Right, so if the asset owners and the retail investors of the world insist on it, this will happen. Um, my question is also related to stewardship, but specifically uh, shareholder proposals and the voting of proxies on behalf of clients. Because one of the reasons that Larry Fink was criticized is because he was espousing perhaps a certain set of ideals, but when you examined the proxy voting history of BlackRock, it, there was a, really a, a lack of uh, alignment there. And so I'm wondering how you at State Street deal with the issue of voting proxies particularly given the emergence of uh, shareholder proposals on highly controversial issues on everything from artificial intelligence to pay equity to a whole host of ESG-related issues. Um, so if you could address that, uh, I would appreciate it in the context of your fiduciary duty. So going back to the prior question, I mean, part of our stewardship uh, is very much around shareholder proposals. Uh, we look and evaluate all of them. And, you know, with all due respect to those that are putting the shareholder proposals forward, a lot of them don't make sense, right? Or when you look at them from an evaluation perspective, uh, they actually don't represent even a small minority of what shareholders do. So we look at them all and we make a judgment on what makes sense for the long-term value of the company here problem with a lot of shareholder proposals is they have great headlines that are associated with them, 
But when you actually look at the what the proposal is or what the consequences uh, or implications of actually adopting it would be, they actually have some negative value, not values uh, implications for the company. So we've all been criticized for our voting record, but I stand by what our team does. They look at them all when it makes sense, they vote for them. And when it doesn't, they don't with this lens towards uh, what's right for long-term value. Ron, you, you mentioned that the shareholder proposals are poorly structured and, and worded and, and not really getting to the point. But I do agree that uh, State Street has better analysts that can actually determine value from values. Why doesn't State Street participate in the formation of shareholder proposals themselves, ones that they could actually vote for and lead the way, as opposed to letting the Sisters of Charity try to show you how to change the world? Yeah, it's an interesting point that we've actually uh, started to debate internally. Uh, is that a role that we might play here? I mean, we have to be careful in that because I mean, ultimately there's probably 7,000, 7,800 different companies that we invest in around the world. So how would we think about that and what would we do? But um, we've just started to think about that because your point's well taken. Uh, we probably, and it's not just us, the vanguards, uh, Black Rocks of the world, probably are in a position where they could craft good shareholder proposals. So it's something that's on our mind. Ron, thank you very much for being here with Thanks, us George. today. That's it for this episode of Climate Rising. Next time... If you believe in a climate change, but don't take that into your portfolio management, I don't think you're satisfying your fiduciary duty. We only be able to make our portfolio sustainable for long term by making the whole world more sustainable. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. This is Climate Rising, a podcast produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback. You can also find show notes and links to resources discussed on this episode on the Climate Rising website climaterising.hbs.edu.